are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, and we're looking together tonight at chapter 10. And we're going to be reading verses 8 through 11. You'll find this on page 1033 of the Pew Bible. And we're going to read together Revelation chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. Hear the word of God. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Well, this text is part of the interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. You may remember that there was a mighty angel or a messenger that came down from heaven and we found that at the beginning of this chapter, he seemed to be more than an angel. He was wrapped in a cloud, which throughout the Old Testament were the clothes and the chariots of God. Over his head was a rainbow, which was the sign of God's ancient covenant with the world. His face was like the sun, which is how John described the transfigured Christ on the mountain. And his legs, we're told, were like pillars of fire, just like those that stood between Israel and the Egyptians. And his voice, like a lion roaring, which was often used in the Old Testament as a simile for the very voice of God. So we had to conclude after this that this messenger from heaven was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he showed us his universal sovereignty by his feet being on the land and the sea. And it was there that he made a solemn oath. It says he swore by him who lives forever and ever, the creator, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. And for our benefit there, Christ confirmed more convincingly the truth of God's plan The end of history has been delayed to leave room for sinners to repent. But make no mistake about it, as Jesus points out here, the end will come and there will be a final judgment. We lightly passed over in verse 2 the fact that there was something in Christ's possession. It says he had a little scroll open in in his hand, and there was no explanation about its contents. 
But putting together verse 2 with verses 8 and 11, we know five things about this scroll. First of all, it's a scroll. It's a roll of papyrus or leather or parchment with writing on it. That's a scroll. In his hand was neither a weapon nor wealth nor a widget, which were typical tools used by the ancients. He had a little scroll, a divine revelation, an inspired infallible word. Secondly, this was brought from heaven. It was in the hand of the messenger who came down from above. So the scroll is not of this world. We know that. Its origin can be traced to the very dwelling of God. It's another worldly scroll, in other words, telling of another worldly kingdom where the glorified saints dwell. And John sees it in the nail-scarred hand of the Lord Jesus, whose death saved us. And so this scroll probably shows the way to be reconciled to a thrice holy God. It's a scroll. It's from heaven. And third, it seems somewhat insignificant. Compare this, for example, to the scroll written within and on the back in chapter 5. That scroll contained God's purposes, while this one contains only a portion. It's small enough for John to swallow, and therefore it seems antiquated and somewhat irrelevant. But number four, we know that it's open, it's not closed and inaccessible like the one that was sealed with seven seals. This revelation is not hidden. Nothing in it has been concealed. Its contents apparently are laid bare for all to see, and its content is openly revealed. So it is a scroll. It's from heaven. It seems, perhaps in the world's eyes, insignificant. It's open. And fifth, we know that John must take it. It's not handed to him. He must take it. Twice the apostle is commanded to retrieve the scroll from Christ's hand. Notice in verse 8, the voice from heaven said, go, take the scroll. Then again in verse 9, the mighty angel said to me, take and eat it. So this apparently is not containing the secret things that belong to God, but it must be the revealed things that belong to us. Now, these five factors suggest to me, and perhaps even to you, that this little scroll is the written word of God. As a matter of fact, the psalmist said, Behold, I have come, and in the scroll of the book it's written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is written within my heart. It's God's word. The gospel in which he reveals the mystery of salvation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God made known to his servant John, according to the first chapter. And the passage goes on to describe for us the bittersweet experience of the apostle with regard to this word. It's not enough for him to see it. It's not enough for him to know what's in it. He must appropriate it. That is to say, John must eat the little scroll in the same way that Ezekiel was told to eat his scroll, if you remember, Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3, When I looked, and behold, a hand was stretched out to me, says Ezekiel, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. You see, Ezekiel was being commissioned as a prophet to preach God's word to Israel. 
And part of the duty was to warn of the impending doom upon their refusal to repent. In Ezekiel 3, it says, The Lord said, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. And for Ezekiel, then, eating the scroll signified a thorough possession of its contents. Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears. And his message, we're told, was one of judgment, lamentation, mourning, woe. He would find the message sweet because God is just. He would find the task difficult because their hearts were hard. So Ezekiel had to be thoroughly versed in and convinced of the message that he was to deliver. The truth and spirit of the message must become a principle of his being, as if he ate it and absorbed its contents. And so John's eating of the scroll seems to have the same meaning. He must identify with and submit to this word of God. He was not only to listen to it, but he was to digest it. He was to live it. He was to proclaim it. He must absorb its truth and embrace its promises. He must bear its cross and endure its suffering. And is that not how Jesus described the good soil in the parable of the sower? They're the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. The temper of the mind, the course of the life, agreeable to the gospel, the heart is humble and holy as revealed in God's word. This is what it means for John to eat that little scroll and to digest the truth of its contents. And notice when he devoured that scroll, it had a distinct twofold effect on him. It tells us in verse 10, it was sweet as honey in his mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. The sweetness of God's truth he tasted. In proclaiming it, he delighted. But afterward, once he felt the full effect of the word of God in his stomach, it turned sour. And I believe that this is an apt illustration of our bittersweet experience with God's revealed will. That's no disparagement on the Bible, mind you. The word is sweet because it makes known salvation that's found in Christ. That's sweet. But at the same time, it's bitter as it plainly foretells the eternal doom of the wicked. It's bitter because it exposes sin and convicts sinners of insulting the one who loves us. It's bitter because it creates within the soul a heartfelt sorrow for iniquity, doesn't it? The word pierces, we're told in Hebrews 4, to the division of the soul and spirit, to the joints and marrow. And as Derek Thomas puts it, it produces in the soul sorrow and joy, sighs and songs, and its bitterness will remain as long as depravity is in the heart. God's word is amazing in its power to uncover the hidden sins in the closet of the heart, isn't it? I'm sure Pastor Pilon can attest to this, but sometimes when you're preaching, if you're talking about sin, somebody might come up afterwards and say, why are you looking into my life? I had no idea you were doing that. There's also bitterness as the unbelieving world around us rejects the word of God. David says in Psalm 119, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And I believe it's impossible for a true believer who loves Christ to be indifferent to sin, whether that's in his own life or somebody else's. 
There is also finally bitterness when the saints are persecuted because of the word. We're told in chapter 1 that John was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Exiled. So is it not sweet taste and sour stomach? Isn't that a fitting illustration of the Christian experience? Because you know religion is an experiential endeavor, isn't it? It's not just academic or intellectual. The sweetness and the beauty and the holiness and the power of God's word is the daily experience of those who taste it. But when it descends further in the inward parts, the darkened mind and the guilty conscience and the corrupt heart, there is bitterness as that sense of sin is awakened in the soul. And that intense feeling of sinfulness cultivates humility in the Christian. I'm always struck when I read Paul's later epistles like this one to Timothy, and he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's the Apostle Paul. You see, the fact is, a little scroll ingested by John was not meant to gratify his own desires. He was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So, devouring the scroll equipped him to make known God's word to the world. He's being commissioned as a prophet of God, as a herald of the gospel, and through his preaching and his pen, he would convey the mind and will of God to the watching and the listening world. He must remind the saints of the promises and caution them against compromise. He must warn the world of impending doom for rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus what God gave John ate, and what he ate he wrote, and what he wrote we hear tonight. And our consideration of this text this evening is the fruit of Christ's command to make this known to the world, isn't it? And Peter tells us, we have the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone else's interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This text is the very word of God. Think of that. The Word of God, inspired by the Spirit, written by the Apostle John. And you and I who receive it are to gratefully receive it and firmly believe it and sincerely adopt it and humbly practice it. Jesus says, those who hear the Word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. God wants all people everywhere to hear and heed his message of salvation. Every person is made in God's image and has a soul that will endure. And the Lord has no delight in the death of anyone, not even the wicked, not even the Ninevites. He says to Ezekiel, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. And John, John conveyed this truth of Christ so that all might come to repentance. So let's receive the apostolic testimony as it's given here. Let's receive it as the inspired, authoritative word of God. That which entered his mouth, supposedly passed through his throat and went into his stomach, was given by God. 
And we may rely upon it as a light which guides and the truth which governs. Paul says to the Thessalonians, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Such was the truth preached by John, and such is that which we have left on record. What we have in the Bible is the written word of God given by divine inspiration, and everything must be judged and evaluated according to this standard. John says to his readers, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. There are two types of spirits in the world, you know. Those that promote truth and those that disseminate error. And there's many of both kinds. In worship, I hope you know that we join the innumerable angels in festal gathering as we adore the triune God. In the world, we're confronted with legions of unclean spirits like those that met Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And John warns his readers with regard to the deception of false teachers. He says that many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many. And so you and I have to be discerning and scrutinize those who claim to be teachers, even this one. It should not surprise you and me that false teachers are set up up shop in the church. (laughs) There are false teachers in the church. They will seek, if possible, to lead astray even the elect. It was so in the time of the apostles, and it has been so in every century since. Paul even tells us, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And what's fascinating to me, I don't quite understand it, that we as people are more readily accepting of things that are extraordinary and sensational and enthusiastic and strange that we're inclined to disbelieve and disregard the ordinary and the unexceptional as boring, dull, uninteresting. Robert Law says, enthusiasm is no guarantee of truth. I think our generation needs to hear that. If the teacher's are teaching in line with the written word, and they're living in a way that corresponds to it, then accept them. But if their teaching is contrary to the written word and their lives are inconsistent with it, reject them. One of the most important tests of orthodoxy, according to the Apostle John, is that of Christology, the study of Christ. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So we learn that false teachers draw people to a false Christ, never to a true one. They're from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. So you and I have to exercise discernment. We have to examine everything by Scripture, even this pulpit. Examine it by Scripture. 
was talking to Sean at lunch this afternoon, and he was saying that J.I. Packer was in the congregation once when he was preaching as a young preacher. Very intimidating. J.I. Packer had his Bible in front of him, and everything that Sean said, J.R. Packer was looking, examining by the scriptures. That's what we need to do. This is an important duty. Do they point to the Jesus of the Gospels or to a Christ dreamed up by their own imaginations? Because nothing less than death and life is at stake. Countenance no one who strays from or contradicts the inspired word of God. Our Lord tells us, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So there is no good reason for believers to be duped by false teaching. We've been warned. We've been equipped. We've given full clarity in the written pages of the New Testament. Every teaching that aligns with this testimony is from the Lord. And I believe the signature of the Holy Spirit is Orthodox Christology. That's the signature of the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me, said Jesus. And so that's the gold standard, if you will. All currency is to be judged by Orthodox Christology. And besides, there is no place else where you and I can find the words of eternal life. Scripture sets before us the way of life, which is the Lord Jesus himself. And the Bible teaches us thankfully about who he is and what he's done and how he applies salvation to us. Isn't that remarkable? It tells us that the way to escape that wrath, which is most certainly to come, is that having repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ and the diligent use of the outward means of grace. We may not understand everything, but we know where the words of eternal life are. So let's receive what is written as the authoritative, life-giving word of God. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And as we enjoy the blessings of God's word, let's also bear the responsibility that it brings. It has to be digested by the mind. It has to be hidden in the heart. It has to be relied upon by the soul. Henry Sweet says, every revelation of God's purposes, even though a mere fragment, is bittersweet, disclosing judgment as well as mercy. How sweet it is to know God has fulfilled his gospel promises in Jesus Christ. Sweet as honey. How bitter it is to feel the conviction of sin, to see the unbelief of the perishing world, and to endure the hostility of apostate man. In the midst of it all, we must trust the wisdom and the love and the grace of God who rules over it all. And we regard the Bible as the most important influence in our lives and the ultimate authority on earth. I hope we think of it that way. It's the Word of God. It was inspired by the infinite, eternal, divine wisdom of the Creator. Its teachings are those of heaven. Its truths are those of the living God. We're told all scripture is breathed out by God. It's his infallible word. It's his complete revelation. It's more desirable than gold. One theologian says, the very first sentence of scripture dispels a dark cloud of ignorance. 
The omnipotent Jehovah emerges from the still quiet of eternal solitude, speaking his creative fiat, and a world is born. Not only do we learn our origin, but our destiny. The wisest and best of heathen philosophers could not follow man beyond the horizon of death, but the word reveals to us both heaven and hell. You see, the Bible is a book dedicated to and designed for the eternal benefit of God's children. That's why it was written. It's suited to all of our needs. It's the guide of youth and the staff of old age. It's a lamp to direct our steps and a light to illumine our path. It's an infallible guide. It gives relief and it brings healing. It provides comfort and imparts strength. It cultivates wisdom. And as Spurgeon once said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Its light is bright enough to guide us through the darkest valley of death's shadow. So receive it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God. Let's long for God's word as spiritual food by which the soul is nourished. Throughout scripture, the sweetness of his word is a recurring theme. How sweet are your words to my taste, said David, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Did you note how he repeated that for emphasis? He's trying to make a point. The repetition is not mere redundance, neither is it uncalled for. It's sweet. Barclay tells us that when a Jewish boy was learning the alphabet, it was written on a slate in a mixture of flour and honey. And the boy was told what the letters were and how they sounded. After that original instruction, the teacher would point to a letter and would say, what is that and how does it sound? If the boy could answer correctly, he was allowed to lick the letter off the slate as a reward. And so it is with the child of God who finds the inspired Bible truly sweet. As a reward for embracing God's word, he may, as it were, lick the letters off the slate as a reward. It's sweet. It's sweet in the reception of it. It's sweet in the sharing of it. It's sweet in the fruit of it. And they who know the word most fully and experience it most deeply can affirm that truth. It's sweet. And so finally, it's clear to me that it is essential for a true Christian to have a real cravings for spiritual truth. One of the most evident signs of grace at work, a craving for spiritual truth like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. You see, the natural man has no relish for the word of God. He can't understand it. But the renewed, regenerated soul longs for such spiritual nourishment. And hunger for the word is a sign of life. I don't care how you feel. It doesn't matter what you're going through. If you want the word, it's a sign of life. The loss of appetite for God's written word is an indication of spiritual declension. And perhaps there's someone here who finds that their appetite for truth has somewhat diminished. Perhaps you wonder if your lack of spiritual hunger is a sign of some spiritual deterioration. Well, all I can say is for all of us, one, we turn from all known sin. 
Two, we remember the past enjoyment of that word. And three, we recommit ourselves to reading it, hearing it, studying it, imbibing it. Christ will be of eternal benefit to us insofar as we appropriate him. So let's find him in the word. Let's seek him in prayer. And let's adore him in worship. And then let's say with the Apostle Paul, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus and for the written word which points us to him. We thank you that in this very unique, unparalleled book that you've inspired by your spirit, we can find the words of eternal life. We pray that you'll help us to appropriate this written word and therefore to appropriate Christ by faith and enable us to experience the sweetness that it brings to our taste. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.